folks is the American Association of Food Safety and Public Health Veterinarians. We are bringing you today our member, Dr. Renata Reimschusel, and she is going to tell us about all of the various incarnations of her career. I would like to remind you to please see about subscribing to our channel, hit the notification button and share this to everyone. We're in season number one and we're up to episode 11. And Dr. Renata, please start us out with telling, telling all of us that really important question of what brought you to veterinary medicine in the first place. Well, um, it's not your typical story. Um, although quite a number of people sort of got there about the same way I did. Um, I grew up in a small family and we had a few pets, but my parents were both scientists and they didn't really believe in medicine and veterinary medicine. So we rarely went to the doctor and the pets, well, they got vaccinated and, and neutered, but uh, um, we never, the kids never went with the parents to take the animals to the vet. So oh, yeah. I was not exposed to yeah, that, that profession at all. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true for me too. That time period, it's like pets were just starting to be a blip on the veterinary radar. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, um, but my parents were both scientists, like I said, and my mom was a working mom. She, she went back to work when I went to school. And uh, she actually, I mean, she eventually in her career, uh, had a whole team of scientists working for her. And uh, um, she, she did a lot of electron microscopy and she was into material science. My dad was an organic chemist and my mom was um, the, the type of scientist in industry that if, like, if a zipper fails, then she would look at that defect under electron microscopy or, or do all sorts of other things to figure out why did this material fail. Mm -hmm. So, um, so anyway, when, when I was in high school, um, I wanted to get some extra money and I worked in a nursing home and for two summers in high school and one summer in college. And I got quite a dose of what it means to work in the medical profession and, uh, sort of the, the ending of life part of, um, the medical profession. Mm -hmm. And, uh, um, I think that that motivated me. At first, I thought I wanted to be a social worker. And my dad sort of looked at me when I said, that's what I want to do. And he said, well, don't you think you could help more people if you just became a doctor? And I thought, maybe, yeah. So I became pre-med. And um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and along with 80% of their freshman class was pre-med. Well, yeah, and you know, you're lucky because that's a vet school there too, isn't it? There is, there is, okay. yeah. And when I was in my sophomore year at college, I um, got a job working in a lab that was in the medical school. They were studying the myosin molecule in muscle, and um, they they hired me as a dishwasher. I just needed money. And while I was doing stuff there, I also took a class in electron microscopy. Mm -hmm. And they used that technique along with many other protein chemistry techniques there. And um, they, uh, they learned that I had a brain. And so they said, well, you can wash the dishes, but 
come and learn and do some of the electron microscopy since you just had a course in it. And so I learned, I mean, it, these were old fashioned microscopes. I mean, you, you had the electron beam, but mm -hmm. you had to hand crank glass plates to take pictures. And then you had to learn how to do the um, photography from, you know, the enlarger to the paper, to the um, developing, to drawing them on a big drum. So oh, yeah. I there, learned. No, there was no automatic, right? And then, do you, but do you remember, because that was, that was new for us too. They were so excited when we first went in for college and they said, oh, look, there's our electron microscope and they'd show pictures, yeah. pictures that were taken. And it was like looking at another universe. Absolutely. Right? It was, it was awe-inspiring. The pictures are and, incredible, right. And so everything was done from scrap. The protein chemistry, we ran huge columns. We had, we wanted to use uh, antibodies to identify the proteins in various fractions. And in order to figure out which fraction it was in, we'd run a bunch of different proteins. The thing is, you, you didn't go out and buy antibodies. We had to make them. So we had to inject the rabbits with the different proteins that we wanted to then, you know, get antibodies to them. And they used secondary antibody techniques. So they used goat anti-rabbit. And so we had a bunch of goats that were kept at the vet school. And I would go over there and I'd inject the goats. And then eventually we had, we for a small fee, we'd get a vet student to bleed the goats for us. And so, you know, I had a little bit of experience with animals there. And the mussels that we studied were chicken mussels. And we'd go down to the Philadelphia Italian market and buy a rooster or a chicken and, and then bring it back and, and euthanize it and, and take the mussels. So there was a lot of science of, working with animals there. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I did well, but I, I didn't get straight A's. And while I was there, I also met my husband and we got married in 1973 and we were each 20. It was between summer sessions after sophomore year. And uh, um, we're still married. It did last. <laughs> and we're, we're heading to the end of this month. It'll be 49 years. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Yeah. So that part of the story is very unique. Okay. So here so you then, are. And you're interacting maybe with some veterinary medical students. That happened to me, too. They're, yeah. you know, with the pre-vet and medical vet med were very big where I was as well. So yeah, that's that happens when you're you're in college. You begin to be exposed to different types of, of careers. So yeah, Absolutely. go on. Yeah. So um, he got into school in Chicago. I didn't get into into medical school at that point. So I followed him to Chicago, and we spent two years there. And I got into a graduate program, and I um, was a TA. It was in a microbiology class, and. Uh, or not class lab, and um, there we we would grow up bacteria. It was Bacillus lichenoformis, and we would harvest large amounts of bacteria. I mean, we grow it up in these huge vats, yeah. and once we got them into log phase, you went two days of harvesting through the night of bacteria. It, that was a whole other experience of so learning. So, at that point, you had your degree in what? Your bachelor's um, biology. Okay, and then it's you went on and you were in a graduate program, so you right. were doing your master's in, in what? Microbiology for that uh, one. Okay, yeah. yeah, microbiology was the what was a big deal too. That still counted towards um, pre-med and pre-vet and right. all that, right? right. Mm -hmm. 
And so I was uh, working in this lab, but I took a class in vertebrate morphology and talk about awesome. I mean, this, this was great. I mean, he would bring in bones and, you know, there'd be bags of bones all around the classroom. And, you know, he'd have this little vole or mole that was a digger that would go like this and yeah. he'd have the scapula of that. And then we'd compare it with the scapula of uh, a sea lion, which oh, is a swimmer. Kidding. And so like they're similar, but they're, you know, huge on one side and small on the other. And uh, um, I was just really. Oh, you're thrilled. I could see it. it was exciting. You know, Absolutely. there's this all these different species of animals that you were exposed to via their bones. And you're looking at that. And that was exciting to you. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so at that point, I sort of took stock in my life and I said, you know, I really don't want to apply to medical school again. I want to apply to vet school. I really like the diversity and the many species and that's the medicine I want to get into. Okay, dare I ask, when you were when you were interacting with the goats back in your other job as a lab tech, were there any baby goats, little kids? No. no? no, no, I, no. I do have to say, goats are such uh, personable creatures. <laughs> They're adorable. That alone, you know, to be a goat doctor is actually really fun and exciting um, but but go on so now you're everything kind of pulled together for you and a realization uh came to the forefront hey it's veterinary medicine so which veterinary school did you apply to well i i was in chicago um so i applied to illinois but i also was sort of a resident of new jersey where my parents had gone you okay know, sure. you know where i'd grown up so mm -hmm. i applied to penn which was, um, well, what do you call it? Like a witchy? Kind of state school. It's yeah, it was a witchy, you know. it was in the witchy program for New Jersey. Yeah, like, I guess so. Yeah, they had a certain number of contracts for yes. that. And Ohio had a couple of contract students for Penn as well. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. Uh, yeah so, Colorado, where I went, was right. like that too. So like, there was like seven surrounding states. So you, as a resident of one of the states that where the school was, sometimes you'd look at it and be like, "Okay, now, now our chances of getting in." How big was your class, and how many women? Well, it was it was about fifty percent women. But what was funny when I went to apply, you know, my dad had said, "You know, try medical school." You know. He said, you're crazy. You're applying to vet school. There's only 18 of them in the country. And right. there's all these medical okay. schools. You yeah. didn't get into med school. Are you ever going to? I got in as an alternate. And then I did. They, they, somebody didn't go. And so I did get in. First application. Now, that class was older uh, folks. We had an average age of 26 and starting. And um, then we had about 50% women. Now, out west, A&M was not very many women at all, but Penn was 50%. And they said, if we had just gone by um, merit alone, we would have had a lot more women when people complained. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there it is, folks. That's the truth. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, so that now you asked uh, how many people... Uh, it was about a hundred, hundred something. Sure, sure. So, so it was a, a good sized class. Well, Penn was ahead of things then. So you went through um, with your education, graduating at uh, University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania in 1981. What happened then? What, what, uh, what was your next step? 
Well, I went into private practice, but before that, um, I really loved the exotics a lot. You know, like I said, I, you know, the vertebrate morphology. So while I was in school, I took whatever exotic rotations I could. Um, I did rotations at the zoo. And actually, after my freshman year, I knew I really wanted to try to get into fish and aquatics if I could. And they had the first program, really, to foster veterinary medicine in the aquatic field. They had the Aquavet program, and that was joint with Cornell. And the year I did it was the second year in its existence. Okay, and wasn't that around the same time that a um, an organization formed uh, the Association of Zoonotic and no Zoologic and Wildlife Veterinarians? I think or so. Aquatic think something. So. Yeah. Well, okay. there was also the IAAAM, the International Association of Aquatic Animal Medicine. Oh, okay, uh, that too. So yeah. it was just starting to come into the forefront. And here you were drawn into the exotic uh, animal field, which again was just beginning at, 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 in, into its existence. Right. So um, my husband had um, uh, followed me back to, to Penn. So he had been in an English program or a, a comparative literature program. But when I got into vet school, he said, we got to go back. And so we went back to Penn and um, he started getting a degree in English. And a PhD in the humanities is very self-driven and it's not like four years and you're out. And so he needed to stay near Penn. So at that point, I just went into small animal and exotic practice in a multi-vet hospital. Um, Langhorne, Pennsylvania, it's uh, across the river from Trenton, New Jersey. It's in Pennsylvania. Um, oh, okay. I didn't realize it was that close, okay. Yep. Yep, it's north of Philly. So um, so uh, we moved out there and he would commute in when he needed to go into graduate school. Um, so we stayed there for a while. And then I was in practice for about five years. And I mean, I took, I was the one that got shuttled, everything strained, you know, the lizards, the snakes. The <laughs> oh, hamsters. here's a snake. Somebody has a pet gopher, or there's a python or what have you, right? Exactly, yep. And I had to write up a whole SOP of how the, the receptionist would tell people, you know, no, you don't come in with your snake around your body. And, you know, <laughs> so we would tell them in, in a bag, in the waiting room, don't take it out, you know. <laughs> oh my um, gosh. Yes. Yeah, so, well, so you were lucky to get into a practice, I think, that had um, do several doctors. Um, I know that when we first got out of vet school back in the day, there were no, there's no internship that you have to go to. It is, it's, it's something you can apply for, but being in a situation like that with a lot of doctors, dare I say, that was helpful to you. Absolutely. You had mentorship, you know, and, and uh, one of the colleagues that I had there also really liked birds. So we really built up the bird practice somewhat uh, in, in that. Uh, so, you know, having, having people there, we did our own emergencies. The emergency clinics were not very, you know, they were few and far between, you know, and would have been the closest um, uh, at an hour away. Uh, so we did our own emergencies and that was very tiring. Mm -hmm. So Jeff got a job down in Baltimore uh, at a women's college uh, teaching English. And uh, um, that was in 86, I guess it was. So I was in practice for five years. Mm -hmm. He got his degree and his, his job. And so I moved at that point for him. Right. And, um, 
it, at that point, you know, I sort of said, okay, I really love exotics and I'm not really, you know, I get the occasional, but it's not really what I'm into. Mm-hmm. And I had treated enough fleas and diarrhea for a lifetime. And so, yeah, we, well, let's all admit the mundane part of veterinary clinical bread and butter. <laughs> fleas and diarrhea. That's actually so true. Yeah, there's always so many times you could say the same thing. So now you were ready. Hey, what again? You you took introspection, and it's very interesting for you. Your changes in your career kind of. Uh, occurred because of various opportunities and not just your life but also what happened with your husband's career exactly now you're at the now you're at baltimore so what happened yeah well we always had a a motto that there you know one of us would have to work you know we said we can have one bum in the family you know and the bum would be the one going to school or whatever okay that's fair okay Mm-hmm. So, so at that point, he was teaching, and um, so I became the bum of the family, and I looked around, and I said, what am I going to do, and I really want to get into the exotics, and I went to the National Aquarium in Baltimore, and Mike Stoskoff was their vet, and he had, um, while they were building um, the aquarium, uh, he had arranged for necropsies for the mammals and the birds to go to Hopkins Comparative Medicine Department, and the fish, they weren't interested in them. And so the fish went to an environmental pathology group at University of Maryland School of Medicine, um, and they did the necropsies of the fish. And so I spoke with both groups and I decided to join up with University of Maryland and deal with the fish. I would go to the aquarium once a week, every Wednesday morning to their medical rounds, and I would walk there and see what eventually might show up on my plate um, at the university. And uh, um, it was, uh, you know, I, I went to get a PhD in pathology mm-hmm. and I did that in four years, which was sort of pretty fast. Um, and uh, what I did for my thesis research was um, one of the things we, well, we did quite a number of things at the, at the university. We, we went out with fish wildlife and collected fish that were in pristine sites compared to super fun sites and we would look for histologic markers um, of the pollutants and uh, um, so looking at fish as models of environmental degradation mm-hmm. and um, I investigated Maryland and what I was finding when I was um, collecting survivors one to two weeks later was new nephrons in their kidneys. And so I developed a hypothesis. I said, I think they're making new nephrons, but these are adult sized fish. And that's pretty unique in the animal kingdom. I didn't know of anyone else who did that. And especially in response to toxic and injury. Mm-hmm. So I thought this would potentially be a good model for a non-mammalian model for human renal failure and you know, possible nephron neogenesis model. So, um, that's what I did my thesis on, and uh, all that work got published. And eventually, it got published in um, an ILAR document, and that—that's uh, the Institute for Laboratory Animal Research. Okay, um, so at that point, you were in your PhD program, right? And so, how long did that time last? That was four years. I stayed at the medical school for thirteen years, though, because as I was finishing up. The fellow that was in charge of the lab left, and 
his second in command took over, but he left within a year. So right as I was getting my degree, they needed a lab director. And I said, <laughs> here I am, you know, and I applied for the position and they kept me on. And so at that point then, um, I was uh, doing diagnostics for the aquarium. I was uh, doing my own research and working with the various groups, fish and wildlife and Maryland Department of Agriculture and um, Environment. And I was also teaching medical schools human pathology. So, oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, so, so that's teacher, so laboratory, and, mm -hmm. and researcher. <laughs> yeah. All right, right. That that's interesting. I hadn't really considered how uh, being a PhD student could evolve into all of those further roles down the line. Right. And um, and and that is, it, it's almost like you you just kind of kept your eyes open for different opportunities. Would you exactly. say? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, right. I became a faculty member, and um, so I, I actually started a, um, a class. Uh, it was called um, Pathobiology of Aquatic Organisms, and people would come from a lot of different places and register as special students at the graduate school and uh, um, uh, come to take that class. Because again, it was sort of a niche that nobody was filling, and I was providing a lot of um, knowledge and, and experience in histopathology and the aquarium, the diagnostics I was getting, I mean, you know, a lot of these animals I had never seen before in gross form, let alone the pathology, but you know, it's amazing how the pathology is, is uh, you know, livers are livers and you can pretty much recognize them mm -hmm. from whatever, but recognizing what's normal sometimes can be challenging in some of these weirder animals, like, you know, what does the flashlight organ in a fish, flashlight fish look like, you know, and, and so I would always, if, if one had pathology, I'd grab the other one and say, okay, I can see normal and now I can tell you what's wrong with this other one. Right. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So uh, I could see that that would have been uh, a, a type of course that was useful for uh, people who were in fish uh, fisheries situations and, as well as uh, aquariums and, and so on. Yeah. So and at that point, you know, vets were still fairly rare in fish. Right. And, you know, but pathology and histopathology was not frequently taught to the fisheries type folks. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I found that that was, you know, a good thing to get them involved in. Yeah. Excellent. Well, that time that you spent um, teaching sounds like it was actually precious to you, especially with the opportunities to develop these different kinds of programs. So what came next into your career? Um, well, eventually I went to FDA, but before we go to that, mm -hmm. um, what happened when I was a student um, we had one room in the animal facility where we had a you know fish. We had one room in the animal facility when I was a when I got there. And during the second year I was there, they expanded to two rooms, and so that was a big deal because we had twice as much space. And we then moved to an off-site from building. Then it it was four rooms. So that was like, wow, now we have actual room where we can have a necropsy room and we can have culture rooms and exposure rooms and, and things for each room. And when we were do, moving to two rooms, um, we had to 
So we we went from one room to two rooms and then to four rooms. And the four room one was off site. So it, it was still on the campus, but it was uh, in a different building than the usual um, animal facility. So it was considered a satellite. So we had to be careful how it was designed and security. And I was still a student then, so I was actually helping doing the plumbing and, and drilling holes and, and Wait, what? putting small <laughs> heads in and yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> you know, when you deal with fish and you deal with tanks. So I and uh, then once I was actually the director of the lab, um, the the school decided to tear down that building and we had to move to another building. And I was working with the, the architects that had submitted the lowest bid, of course, and they had no idea of how to uh, design a lab. They, they put the fume hood right next to the front door. And uh, um, yeah, so <laughs> I had to redo a lot of what they did and then supervise the actual building and uh, seeing that they moved walls and we had a lot of different things. So I learned how to read um, uh, floor plans and, and architectural drawings. And so literally building a new lab. Um, so I did that. And as I said, I stayed at the university for 13 years. And uh, it was it was a delightful time. I loved working with the students. Um, I loved doing the research. Uh, the thing that's really difficult in uh, American science and at universities is the funding, though. I mean, you have to write grants and basically you're sort of a used car salesman for the science. And you know you, you pay to work there because you have to bring in your salary and the salary of your technicians and grants for students. And so that was kind of difficult, you know. I think it's, it's people, yeah, I think people forget that as a as a professor, you um, you you spend a lot of your own personal time. And yeah. and it's not just you, it's like, oh, I get paid to go in and teach and there you go. But there's all that other time when you're, you know, doing developing classes or, or interacting with students that are uh, over and above your, your regular hours. So it has to be a labor of love. Right. But, but uh, again, I, I think um, it, it's worth looking at. We do have a number of people in uh, the American Association of Food Safety Public Health Veterinarians that are professors and, and not just in veterinary schools, at, as you have already demonstrated. You weren't in a veterinary school teaching veterinary medicine. So it, it's kind of interesting to see that there are so many opportunities that can uh, be availed because we have our veterinary medical degree. And one of the things about writing grants at that time, FISH, again, was, you know, I was out in the periphery. I mean, I really was, you know, not only the periphery of human medicine at the medical school, but I was at the periphery of veterinary medicine you know, sure. because fish were not that common. So um, you were breaking ground. You, you really were. You were breaking I was, and, you know, like having built the animal facility that that was another publication that, you know, I, I co-wrote with uh, another author to describe, you know, the care and use of fish in um, uh, uh, animal, you know, research facilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that was uh, another article. Um, so I was writing grants to try to support myself and I would submit to NS NIH and I was trying to get them to take up on the model of fish as a model for kidney repair and regeneration. And they would say, oh, it's fish. And they said, you've got to apply to NSF. And so I would apply to NSF 
And then they would say, oh, it's biomedicine. You have to apply to NIH. You know, and right about as I was getting ready to leave, I got some real substantial funding from NIH. Um, and this is way before zebrafish. You know, zebrafish then became a hot and sexy topic, but um, this was well before then. And, um, but I, at that point, I had been made an offer at FDA that I just couldn't refuse. And Wait so- Did the FDA came to you? Well, I, I applied, sure. but it was a, a job for working, um, setting up their aquaculture research program. And they did, offered me the job. I see that. Tell me, where, where was that posted? How did that even come into your, uh, uh, you know, your notice? Because that- um, well, actually, somebody at FDA contacted me and said, do you think you might apply? <laughs> so they, they knew about me and they, they said, you know, you might consider throwing your hat in this ring. And uh, so I did. Well, I, I, I looked at your list of publications. It went on for many pages and that was just a list of publications. Offhand, how many, how many, public, how many articles were you, did you publish? Would you well, say? I, I published a lot after I got to FDA too, but mm -hmm. I mean, it's over a hundred. I've sort of stopped itemizing. I mean, I, I can look at my CV and figure it out, but oh, it's no, yeah, 120 no, I, or so. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I looked at that, I skimmed through and I was like, oh, oh, wow. I've never seen anything like that. So I, I venture to guess that when, when individuals in the FDA came across your, your writing, the fact that you published in a way that, that, put you out into the eye of, of everyone. And, and I, I want to say, you know, nowadays we have the same kind of opportunity. We don't have to necessarily be published in, um, in, in medical journals, although that, or, or any type of, of peer-reviewed um, magazines and so forth. But really, we have the opportunity to do things like what, write white papers, um, and post those to um, like LinkedIn, let's say. I know some people who do that. So the, op I, I guess- And also presentations at meetings too. Exactly, oh, presentations. Um, yeah, yeah. So I had, I had given talks about fish problems in medicine at AVMA and, you know, several other, you know, larger um, meeting platforms. So I think FDA saw, you know, folks there. Right. Saying. So, so, I, so when I think of this, to me, what you're, what you're demonstrating is that uh, in order to be able to do your work and write your grants, you, you really did need to get your name out there and, and all of this, this kind of integrated to make you a person that came up on the radar and opportunity was presented to you. Right. So, um, so tell us what you did then um, with the FDA, where was that located according to where you lived at the time? Well, it, it was a fair commute. I mean, I, you know, I had lived outside Northwest Baltimore and, and I had had two children in the meantime. So I, you know, I had two daughters. And uh, um, so it extended my commute about 20 minutes. So it was about 40 minutes if you do it, if you leave the house at 5.30 in the morning, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I would get in early and I would leave moderately early so that I could pick up my kids, you know. But, sure. but the, you know, down here in D.C., the rush hour is, is so bad that if you leave 10 minutes late, it's going to take you 20 minutes longer to get there, you know, or, or you know. It, or even, you know, a half hour longer, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's- Center of Vet Medicine, 
Oh, how, old you, how old were your children at that time? Um, let's see. I had the kids uh, 90 and 92, and I moved to FDA in 99. So they were in school. You know, so elementary that. schools for the most part and middle school perhaps yeah so very young here yeah. you are it was funny when when I was pregnant with my second daughter I was still at the university and we were getting ready to move to the the, the last lab that I you know worked with the architects and everything on and the safety officer contacted me because we were underneath um, a pediatric clinic. We were in the basement of the building that had a pediatric clinic above us. And I was known for, you know, giving nasty chemicals to fish to evaluate their kidneys. And, and one of the compounds was mercury. And we would inject and I, you know, totally do everything by the book very safely. Um, but he came over to visit me to talk about how serious these chemicals should be handled. And I was eight months pregnant. And I opened the door and he looks at me and he came, you know, he sort of came to make sure I was aware of the concerns that pregnant women would have with a research lab below them. <laughs> well, you know, good on him. Okay. Good on him. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it was kind of funny because he says, I, I need to talk to Dr. Reinschitzel, the director. And I said, that's me. <laughs> you know? Again, this pregnant woman couldn't be the director. <laughs> I feel like there might have been a little mansplaining that. Okay, so. But anyway, you know, I reassured him that I was definitely aware of the potential hazards of chemicals uh, to the fetus. And oh my gosh, but that does bring to mind um, around that same time, as I recall, um, there there was an American Veterinary um, uh, Women Veterinaries Association, and yes, there was I was a member. Yeah, I was too. And there was a, um, uh, some literature that had come out that was talking about the dangers as a veterinarian in practice, and, um, being around anesthetic gases, it was teratogenic. And at that time, um, I was working for a veterinarian who had the um, surgery in the basement of the clinic. And there was no pro process for evacuating any of the gases. So I had said, I'm sorry, you know, I'm pregnant. I, I need to not be doing surgery at this time. And I got fired. Oh, man. It's <laughs> just like, you're not going to do surgery, so you're fired. Uh, Times have changed. Yeah, it was about like, oh, they, they wouldn't go into it. And, you know, you're not, as a veterinarian, you don't get into a, a lot. Of, there was not a lot of things back then about going to a lawyer and stating as such. You just kind of took it on the chin and went and went forth, you know. Yeah. And, and, yeah. Um, and, and here you were in a situation where you were, came from a, a very knowledgeable scientific type family and science was your whole life. And then you in there and so you were very well qualified to make sure you were handling everything safely Absolutely. So, so that's that's it's just a little segue into being you know a veterinarian and then having children and some of the challenges which I, I have to say that um, every veterinarian I know has um, really accepted those challenges in in a very uh, a very forthright and constructive manner in that they continued they found a way to continue and just keep going and so now here you are as a mom and you're like, okay, now I'm going to get home from my commute in time to get my kids from school and then, you know, do that. So um, it sounds like, though, that you were developing now, a program at the FDA, too. Yeah. 
So at that time, Center for Vet Medicine had about 350 people in the entire um, center. So the majority of them were in Rockville. And then about 50 of them were in Laurel, which is where the research uh, component was, which is near the USDA Ag area and the Ag Library area. I don't know if you know that area. But um, so out of those 50 people, there were about 12 to 15 principal investigators, and I was one of them. Mm -hmm. And um, government, sometimes, you know, gets end of year money. And so they had gotten end of year money before they hired me and built a building that they wanted to be the aquaculture facility. And when I had interviewed there a year before, I saw in the back room where all the plumbing was for the heating and chilling systems and pH adjusts and all the filtration, and everything, it was all insulated. And I said, it's un unusual. You've got insulated plumbing back here, what's underneath? And they say very proudly, nothing but the best, copper. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> because copper kills fish. And uh, so uh, I, I knew- One thing was made of copper. And the plumbing. Were, right, and then there the was pipes. the concern it would leach into- The water. The water, which is what you were having the fish Swimming. <laughs> yes. Okay. And especially, um, you know, like you might have some copper plumbing somewhere along the way in very old buildings. And it's been, you know, it's got all the crud in there that's sort of keeping the copper away from the water. You know, sure. it's, it's aged. Um, new copper is deadly. Um, so I knew when I interviewed that I would be about a year without having water for the fish um and uh, you know some fish can survive it but certainly the salmonids can't you know they they had a few trout not trout they had a few tilapia and tilapia can live through just about anything um but they had rooms empty rooms with empty tanks and you know they had built the building and they had gone apparently to aquaculture facilities and every room that supposed, was supposed to house fish had PVC piping, but it would go to the back room, which had all the copper stuff and recirculate through all that stuff. And they had essentially built the heating system like you would heat a Hilton. I mean, it was way overpowered, way too hot, difficult to regulate. So basically all the knowledge I got at the medical school, designing and building a lab, I needed to apply at the um, at the FDA. So um, the first year was essentially building, rebuilding, and repiping, and and they hadn't put bypasses to all the equipment, and so you you couldn't take one thing down without the total water shutdown. Um, so <laughs> so I redid all that too. You know, I mean, not physically. I mean, I directed it, and they didn't. They had a room approved for uh, using radioactive chemicals, but they didn't have a hood in there. And, you know, so it just needed a lot of care. And so that's what I started with. So I, I built and redesigned another lab. And uh, then there were three main things that uh, we, we focused on is one was fish models for drug approvals for fish. So. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, not for human diseases like I had been, but, you know, um, 
when I got there, I think only eight drugs were approved in the United States at that point. And so mm -hmm. one of the missions for CVM was actually to try to facilitate approvals via the research. Um, USDA had, um, or no, US Fish and Wildlife actually was trying to get certain drugs approved for fish because mm -hmm. they use them because they stock, they have stock programs. And so they really needed drugs in early stage fish to help them over periods of stress and potential disease. Yeah. So, so we were actually helping government by doing some actual studies. Right. Um, and I versus like that, that mammalian medicine, you have a sponsor. There was not, I, I, didn't, I didn't think the research was done at FDA. I thought it was just a matter of reading what had been put out by other agencies or let's say- And that's the majority. Yep, mostly that's what's done. Like with mammalian medicine, they have plenty of sponsors. Drug companies are happy to step up to the plate to do the research. And then what they do is submit the data. Um, with fish, there are very few sponsors. Drug companies okay. you know, use fish medicine as a liability almost because mm -hmm. you know it, it just isn't worth the mark. The market isn't there to sell enough drugs to cover their expenses and to cover their liability. Right. So, so U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife was actually being a sponsor. So it was government sponsoring and we were collaborating with their public master file. Wow, um, I had no yeah. idea that was even a, a, a possibility. Of course, our work then would be reviewed by other folks at FDA in the stringest of ways, you know, but, but yeah. yeah. So we were actually doing some work to try to facilitate approvals. Um, we were doing collaborations with a lot of other uh, chemists around the country um, they, uh, FDA chemists, um, for example, in Denver and Seattle and Dolphin Island, um, we were dosing animals, fish, various species with illegal drugs so that the, the um, uh, chemists could develop and refine their methods. Now, initially, you can just grind up fish muscle and plunk the drug in there. But what you really need is the metabolites. It's just and the metabolites. So, so, so you need to yeah. feed the, the drug or expose the fish to the drug to run it through their body and their bloodstream and their liver and their kidneys. And then that's what the final proof of the pudding is for those tests. So, so point this what you were in the night, it was in the 1990s that you were there and you developed this whole program. Wow. More 2000, 99 was when I joined. Okay. So early 2000s. 2000s. Mm -hmm. And um, we were, um, you know, why illegal drugs? Well, because the drugs that are approved in other countries right. could be illegal here. When, when, when I started this, 40 drugs were approved in Japan. So it wasn't like the companies that were growing the fish were doing something illegal there. But we, as the United States, have to make sure that when they bring those fish in, that they don't have any harmful residue. And, let, and let's not forget, these fish are going to be for human consumption. Exactly. And exactly. ultimately, this was um, from the aspect of food safety for humans. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, with drug approvals, with people, you just have to show that the drug works in people and doesn't cause bad things, or at least you itemize the bad things that it does and the benefits outweigh the problems. With animals, you have to prove that it works. You have to 
make sure it doesn't hurt the animal. And you have to make sure if it's a food animal that there's the human food safety component. And that's a very expensive part of drug approvals for animals. Okay, and so at this point, this the, the, the Association for Food Safety and Public Health Veterinarians was at that time coming into being as the uh, food hygiene veterinarians, perhaps? Yeah, and, have been, yeah, yeah. yeah, and that- Asset and things like, yeah. Right, and that came up on your radar. Did you feel like it was useful to join or when did it even occur to you to join us? I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> I, I did, uh, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's blanking, sorry, oh, no. <laughs> but it is a very important program to be part of because it does allow you to have connections with folks and, and you know, and, and to share education between the guys, you know. The, yeah. the As I recall, when I saw it was about 2008 at AVMA conference, there was a booth and um, I believe around that time was when they combined with public health veterinarians. So uh, the, the, the truth is that you really didn't have all that many, let's say, veterinary organizations that, you know, were specific to what you were doing. And, and I'm certain that when you saw food safety and knowing that ultimately <laughs> that's what your whole job entailed was really saying, is this going to be safe? For, for human consumption, that would have been uh, that would have been something that would have caught your eye. I'm, I might have joined it after I had started Vetlearn. That's probably later later in the career, probably after 2010. Sure. But uh, the the final thing that we, we were working on with the fish was also antimicrobial resistance. Okay. Um, which was again now. we're talking fringe <laughs> because. CLSI is the big organization that establishes standards for testing the bacteria. Well, mm -hmm. most of the bacteria that are pathogens that have been uh, um, tested are, you know, they grow at 35 degrees, 36 right. degrees. Mm -hmm. And the cold water fish pathogens don't grow there. So they didn't even have control organisms. So um, I, I actually brought in a, a person who wanted to get his PhD in and had him start working on developing uh, control criteria for bacteria from uh, fish pathogens. And that was, that was a whole nother big story. 